Welcome to Deeper Levels, the podcast about pathology, medicine, and science, mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Andrew Courtright, who is an assistant professor of clinical medicine in the Department of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He is also the former chair of the Hospital Ethics Committee. He is board certified in internal medicine, critical care medicine, and pulmonary disease. He completed his medical school training and PhD in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, incidentally where we crossed paths, and his residency and fellowships in Boston. He is also a funny, smart, and a lovely human being. So Andrew, how are you? I can't wait to uh, talk to you today for the show. I've been thinking of you since this whole situation erupted in the United States. How's it going? I'm better now that I get a chance to talk to you. Um, I just uh, came off a week uh, attending in one of our COVID ICUs, um, and I think everything's changed, and it's just kind of a growing learning experience that we're all thinking through together. So I'm super excited to be here chatting with you. Awesome. Great. Well, I like to hear that, that you're not just like rocking slowly in a corner and staring <laughs> off into space, which is probably what I would be doing if I had your job, but that's That why. was our one. Did... And then... <laughs> okay. Okay. Good, good, good. Okay. So normally I've been summarizing the news in this portion of the show, but I find and I don't know if I'm alone in this, that um, the numbers are starting to lose perspective. And I feel like they're just getting so big. And obviously, it's terrible. But suffice it to say that the number of cases, both of infections and deaths in the United States is staggering. Um, the United States response, and I'm expressing my own opinion here, has been marked by underavailability of needed supplies, lack of testing, and a mishmash of social distancing measures, which has left even the most eager of us who want to be informed, it's left us confused, and I think a lot of people scared. So with all of that in mind, I still find myself wanting to understand vital areas within this pandemic, and you sit at the crossroads as an expert in two areas which I find fascinating, pulmonary medicine and bioethics. So let's do this. First, I'll start by asking you some questions about how you came to this point in time. Um, First, tell us a little bit or a lot about your background and how you came to work where you do. Well, I started out in philosophy, actually, as you mentioned, and I was in graduate school for philosophy, um, which I really enjoy, but I was starting to do some work in ethics and bioethics in particular, and it really became apparent to me that um, you really needed to know more about the bio part of the bioethics and, you know, what people were really thinking about in the medical field, what medical ethics issues were relevant to them and their day-to-day clinical practice. And I I really felt like I wanted to be more informed about the kind of medical science part of it. So I went to med Mm -hmm. school, as one does. Just as one does. You just decide one day and then it happens. Yeah. Yeah, Right. Fortunately, I was a biology major in undergraduate, but I didn't have to restart my whole... Well, that's good. Training. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I did medical school at UNC where we met. Um, mm-hmm. I still tell people that I would be a hematopathologist if I wasn't uh, <laughs> in pulmonary medicine. People listening are going to say hematopathology. Yes, listeners, all six of you. I was so interested in hematopathology at one point in my life, and that is when Andrew and I became friends. Yes, we did differential counts together happily. Which was amazing. It was, it it really was one of the highlights of medical school for me, (laughs) for better or worse. It was, it was a quiet, lonely time for you. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) Things have just really changed so dramatically. Um, Yeah. yeah, So then I went to um, internal medicine. As it turns out, I um, eventually got back around to interacting with patients. um, Mm -hmm. And I did an internal medicine residency um, and then I did pulmonary and critical care medicine um, up in Boston at Brigham and Women's, where I did most of my training. Um, and at that point, I was still really interested in doing kind of a mix of more what I think of as primary care, where you're really following people longitudinally in clinic, but also still keeping some of those critical care skills and um, populations in mind. So I ended up doing another fellowship in pulmonary transplant. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, okay. And mm-hmm. so now I'm a full-time pulmonary transplant attending at the University of Pennsylvania. Okay. Yeah, that's a 
that is certainly a niche, I, I assume. <laughs> yes. um, so when is the first time you remember hearing about COVID-19? And do you remember what the source was and how, how you felt about it at the time? So I actually feel like I'm in a pretty unique practice population because I see a lot of regular coronavirus. I actually see a lot of respiratory viruses in general. Um, uh -huh. In pulmonary transplant, we're extremely vigilant about respiratory viruses, para-influenza, metanumavirus, regular coronavirus, um, because okay. we see immune dysregulation in our population when patients sure. get these viral infections. So uh -huh. something like coronavirus is a common cold when it's kind of your typical seasonal coronavirus, but in our population, we see it trigger acute rejection, we see it trigger organizing uh -huh. pneumonia. Uh, we even see it trigger chronic rejection, um, and including accelerated uh, phenotypes where we really don't have very many treatment options. So as a practice, we're incredibly vigilant about getting respiratory swabs routinely, understanding what pathogens are in our community, uh, because our patients are extremely vulnerable to these infections. So that's all a kind of long-winded way of saying that kind of by the time I was reading about cases in Wuhan and, and really when it started to spread to South Korea, I was already pretty concerned just knowing okay. what coronavirus does on a kind of regular basis, especially with the kind of reports of immune dysregulation that were coming out. Okay. And so just as a little aside, before, say a year ago, before we were living in this upside down reality... Did your do pulmonary transplant patients wear masks all the time? Are they always protecting themselves? Yeah, so they they in, in that's a great question. Yeah. So we yeah. we have our patients always wear masks when they're in kind of crowded areas. We tell them we prefer that they not be in crowded areas. So we're like, if you're going to go to the movies, go to a matinee. If you're going to go out to dinner. Uh -huh go to an early seating. Um, you know, if you have grandkids that are sick, they have to be out of the house. Their parents have to be out of the house. So there's a lot of built-in social distancing in our population already. Uh -huh. Okay. That's interesting. I didn't even think about that. So um, today is April 20th, uh, 2020. How has your opinion changed since you said you were first hearing about those cases? Was there one moment where you feel like your opinion changed from what you were feeling to something much worse or I, I, I'm very interested in this, especially with your population, or was this something you knew from the very beginning was going to be this serious? I mean, I've been really concerned from the beginning. I mean, in February, I was looking back um, on my Amazon search history, and I was looking for masks for myself <laughs> and for my patients in the middle of February, back okay. before that became like super popular and trendy. Um, were you able to find them? I did. Back in February, it was not that hard. Huh. I mean, they were more expensive than... Uh, they had been, I think, in January, but um, okay. they were actually there, which is... I'm surprised you could actually find them because I thought that with it being already bad in some other parts of the world, that those parts of the world were buying them up. So that's interesting. Yeah, then maybe there were some stockpiles locally that could still be tapped at that point. Um, yeah. But, you know, I had my last in-person clinic visit was uh, March 3rd. So we had decided to basically shut down our... Um, outpatient uh -huh. clinics face face. Mm -hmm. um, pretty early on before we were seeing a lot of cases just out of an abundance of precautions. So I think we were extremely, I don't know if paranoid is the right word, if you're being precautious and it's vigilant, vigilant. is the word. Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah, Cause that's, it's not paranoia, yeah. right? Because you're, you have legitimate reasons to be concerned. Especially in your population. I think very caution is sort of, uh, like you said, it's almost a way of life for you all. So, um, so how has work changed? I know you said you were in a COVID unit now, which I assume is not a run of the mill for you. So how has your work changed during this time? No, I really, yeah, that's, uh, I haven't done any critical care attending in a, a medical intensive care unit um, at mm -hmm. Penn at all. So this was the first time that I had taken care of non-transplant patients. Um, and I think it's, it's been remarkable because across our division, um, we've all kind of come together to provide additional critical care staffing. Um, mm -hmm. So that's the people who do outpatient pulmonology, the kind of folks who are more research oriented, the pulmonary hypertension folks, all of us mm. with critical care training, but maybe that's not what we do on an everyday basis where we're right. being called to go in and provide additional staffing. Um, mm -hmm. And so 
I, I'm just really amazed and impressed by everybody who's been able to come together and provide that service for this patient population and for the hospital. It's really remarkable. Yeah, that's really nice. You probably get to see people you don't normally get to see in terms of coworkers too. Mm-hmm. So and nurse, nice. I mean, nursing has been fabulous. Like people get pulled from mm-hmm. like their routine units. There's a lot of folks who are usually in the ORs who've come to kind of staff and shadow in the COVID units. Um, and it mm-hmm. really kind of runs the gamut. So, you know, people who are maybe in the ORs doing um, kind of scrub uh, tech work, they come to the ICU so they can help us supervise taking on and off our PPE to make sure that we're doing it appropriately. Oh, um, and those people are so good at that right, job. Exactly. You know? no. They're the ones you want hundred percent. And you know, it's such a skill set. You don't like think yeah. of it as like, oh, I'm just going to throw this mask on. But it, it's like, a, it's a, a skill set and it really takes a lot of practice. And to have somebody stand there while you're trying to come out of a patient's room appropriately uh-huh. and walk uh-huh. you through those steps, it's just, it's incredibly valuable. Yeah. And probably takes some of the anxiety out of the situation, 100%. which I feel like, yeah. yes, would be a big problem. So what are you hearing from other healthcare providers in your daily practice about COVID-19? How are they feeling and handling this time? And then um, we already kind of answered this question about a wider variety of people helping out than say six months ago, but um, how, how do, do you get any feedback from those people? How are they feeling? I think everybody, at least in the unit where I was, everybody was pretty anxious the kind of first couple of days and then trying to figure out just, you know, what needs to be done, how to take care of patients, how to take care of yourself. I think that anxiety level is improving. Um, I think a lot of people are also very anxious about their outpatients. And I know that this is true for me. Like I'm doing a lot of telemedicine outpatient clinic visits. I'm trying to take care of people remotely, trying to balance, you know, do I really need blood work today? Do I need a chest x-ray to take care of this patient? Like what Mm -hmm. things can we risk exposing folks to, or if they're going to go out, what do we have to do to minimize that? Who do I need to Mm -hmm. see in person? Um, And I think that that's something that seems pretty common. So some of the patients that I share with the oncology practices are going through the same kind of risk benefit decision-making. Um, yeah. I'd be really curious, honestly, if I can ask you a question, like how oh, how folks yes. in your department are kind of dealing with everything on a day-to-day basis, like what kinds of decision-making or repurposing that y'all have been going through? I mean, through. I think my hospital is so unique because we see such a unique patient population. We're just women and infants. Mm-hmm. The From the data, which is publicly available, so I don't feel like I'm revealing anything that the governor and and such are releasing, I think the majority of patients in Rhode Island are at the main hospital, which um, due to like different companies owning is owned by a different company. So as far as I know, um, most of the people in my department are not being directly impacted, except most pathologists I've talked to. our volumes are way down and it's for the same reasons that you're not seeing patients in clinic. It's because, you know, clinicians are weighing the risks of say, you know, does this patient need to go to colposcopy? Does this patient need a biopsy today? Can she wait to get her pap smear for six months? So it's just an elective surgery is, as far as I know, most places are not happening. So, you know, pathology is only, we only do what specimens come in right. and there aren't as many coming in. So I think a lot of us actually have more time to work on research, mm-hmm. but then the flip side of that is that some of us are working remotely. And so, you know, like I don't have access to my good camera at work. And I mean, that's a pretty small gripe, but it's just, how do I make do, how can I make do with different things? And it's, it pales in comparison to what you all are up to, but, um, I think pathologists as a whole are seeing a decrease in volume, which is kind of unnerving for us. And the other thing I wonder about, and, you know, my friends and I wondered about is what's going to happen to all those people who aren't getting their biopsies, yeah. you know, a hundred percent. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, cause it's like, if there are X number of slots for biopsies per day, and those were almost all full on a right. normal basis, how are you going to catch up? Yeah. Like, are we going to be doing biopsies on Saturdays or is, are people just not going to get cervical screening? Like it's just to me and the same thing with breast screening. So it's just sort of like, 
all these questions that we don't have the answers to because we're just trying to like make it from one day to the next. But, yeah, that, that's such um, a huge yeah. question. hundred um, yeah. percent. That gives me yeah. a lot of anxiety. <laughs> like when I things imagine. get back to normal yeah. as, you know, just like, how? yeah. Uh, where Where's the capacity yeah. to catch up for 100%. that? You know, at that point, like when all the COVID people are better, are the pulmonary and critical care people are going to help the gynecologist? <laughs> like, I don't think yeah, so. Listen, so it's like, retrain me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just so many questions that, you know, we just have to figure out how to do. And I'm sure we'll figure it out as a healthcare community, but it's just almost more than people can think about right now. So um, do you think as a result of what we're going through right now, that medicine will change in the future, the practice of medicine will change? I mean, I do, I do think that if some of the telemedicine is sustained and the kind of kinks are worked out and the reimbursement kind of settles out that there probably will be some more shift towards telemedicine. I mean, I joke with my Mm -hmm. patients now that when I'm running an hour behind, at least they get to wait in their house instead of in the (laughs) waiting room, which is honestly. Like they can just watch Netflix and then you can just break into their binge watching and be like, hey, just your uh pulmonologist here to uh and i really yeah, cut I their commute and i mean there's and they're probably gonna that's probably much nicer for them yeah exactly i think it's yeah. it is such a balance though to make sure that you're getting the information yeah. you need to safely take care of patients but for mm-hmm. some patients for routine visits i've actually been felt surprisingly comfortable um with mm-hmm. that kind of remote yeah. care plan so i'm hoping that we'll be able to utilize the technologies that have been built up around this um, as we go forward. Yeah. And also, I yeah. And some other feedback I've heard is that it's forcing companies. It, I think some of the reason that wasn't happening was because of reimbursement for those. Mm-hmm. And that just all sort of got waived. So it'll be interesting to see if that goes back, you know, or if we just, because I think it's probably, you know, like the same thing they say, there's not as much traffic now because people are working from right. home and maybe some percentage of people will still work from home and then we won't you know, create as much pollution, wouldn't that be like a nice side effect? Yeah, there's all these kind of externalities that people have been observing. Yeah, 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 it really is. um, It's not something you think about until you're actually going through it. Exactly. So, uh, and you don't have to give personal details, but has this um, whole situation affected you outside of work, like increased stress levels? And then how do you handle that or as much as you want to tell us? I think it's a lot of the stress that I feel personally is about taking care of, of the patients in my clinic. So I think I have 50 post-transplant patients, give or take, and maybe mm-hmm. another 25 to 30 pre-transplant patients. And I would say mm-hmm. under normal times, we are extremely vigilant. We have very close communication with each other, um, with the team that I work with. And it's created a lot of additional stress to really try to make sure that those patients are cared for and doing well, particularly because they're such a vulnerable population. So mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I think that's added this extra layer of stress. Um, I'm very fortunate to work with an amazing uh, nurse and nurse practitioner. Um, and mm-hmm. so we can kind of share that responsibility. Um, oh, that's nice. Yeah. It does make it hard though, because it's, you can't really turn off, I think in the same way if I was quote unquote, just in the ICU. Um, I see. Cause you, you do that and then you go back to the extra that you're already worried about right, all the time. Exactly. It's, like, it's like a layer cake yeah. of stress. You're just like one layer at a time. So I've been, you know, yeah. reading a little more, um, but nothing, I can't say anything that like is a foolproof stress beating strategy that I would recommend to you. Or your okay. Well, you're getting through it. So that's most important. Humor thing. helps. Honestly. Um, being able to laugh yeah. occasionally is. I agree. Although I find sometimes when I try and watch something that's funny, I, I'm just like so irritated that I don't, I don't have like the headspace to laugh at something. So it takes me a couple of tries to find something that I actually think is funny. Well, that's know. so true. Or I'm just hung up on how people aren't social distancing in old movies. <laughs> it just Isn't that funny? Out. You see someone touch someone else's face and you just want to like slap like, them. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> I, no, no, no. <laughs> okay. So um, this is a podcast primarily directed at pathologists. So let's review a couple of things about pulmonary and critical care medicine. Um, I keep hearing 
um, that COVID patients present in different ways than quote unquote typical viral pneumonia patients. Can you explain this to me in a way that you think that I'll understand as a pathologist? And then is it that the people who are getting sick enough to need you are like a different population of people? Or is it just the the disease manifests in such a way that different settings or medicines or interventions are needed or what do they mean by that? Yeah, those are, that's really, those are really great questions. Um, I, I, you know, having had a, a few patients now, I'll make some general observations based on what I think is a relatively limited experience, but also kind of maybe informed by what I've been hearing about my colleagues as well. Um, yeah. I, the thing that's been most surprising to me, honestly, especially over the last week, is is that patients seem to be coming in um, relatively sick, which isn't surprising because I think a lot of people are trying to wait it out at home because there's right. a perception that there's increased risk in hospitals um, mm-hmm. and um, that they're not as safe as waiting at home. Um, and then they tend to come in, they get sicker relatively quickly, and then they stabilize out often with ventilatory support. Um, And then six or seven or even eight days in, then they get really sick. Um, Hmm. And that's not something that I think of, for example, with influenza, um, with Mm -hmm. some of the ARDS we see from sepsis, where patients come in, they get really sick, and then they kind of plateau. And then once they start to get better, they don't get really sick again. Um, I see. And that seems to be just anecdotally from what I've seen, um, one way in which COVID seems to be a little bit different. Okay. So it's a, they come in pretty sick and need basically to be intubated. Is that what I assume mm-hmm. you mean by ventilatory yeah, support? Yeah. And then while they're on the ventilator, they seem to go through some sort of second dip where they need like what does that mean do they need higher settings on the ventilator they need higher settings they need they need uh, paralytics Um, oftentimes we're proning these patients early which means that rather than letting them lie on their backs um, Uh with the the endotracheal tube in their mouth we're turning them over um, to better help onto their stomachs onto their stomachs yep Um, to better help for fusion matching Um, and that's not that's something that we're doing within the first 24 to 48 hours, but we're having to reach for that again on day seven or day eight, um, which... So you flip them over yep. and then flip them back on their back and then you got to flip them back on their tummies again. Yeah, so we what we try to do with what this is called proning, um, what we try to uh-huh. do with it is we try to flip people over and leave them on their stomachs for 16 to 24 hours. Uh, um, and uh-huh. then we'll uh, supine them again um, for uh-huh. eight, 12 hours. And then if they're doing better, then we stop. Sometimes we'll stop flipping stop them, back, flipping and them back and forth. Sometimes okay. we'll do it again. But usually once you've stopped needing to prone people, you're kind of done for the time that they're in the hospital. But what we're seeing with these patients, uh-huh. at least some population is, is that we're having to reach for that tool again on day seven or day eight. Where it's definitely not, been and it seems studied. to help them both times. Like it, it the it helps their oxygenation about... for sure. Um, whether mm. it helps them, whether it's going to help them get out of the hospital or get off the ventilator, especially those patients where you're reaching for it a second time, I think we don't know yet. Okay, and um, this is kind of a silly question, but do ICU beds have like a hole in them, like a massage table? How do you? No, it's not a silly question at all. So um, there are some specialized ICU beds. They're very uncommon that actually kind of allow you to rotate people um, Uh in a safe way so that the whole bed rotates. Um, Whoa. Yeah. And so then you. It sounds like something out of Wolverine (laughs) or something. It's advanced technology for sure. And there's not (laughs) a lot of beds like that. Um, So what, what we've done, and again, this is just another example of where we're trying to utilize resources from across the hospital is, is that. Um, folks from the OR staff, where of course they're used to like these exquisitely detailed patient positioning, um, they're yes. able to come and help us. We turn the patient over and we actually use like, do you know those uh, donuts that you can like put your face into to elevate your face off the head of a bed? 
Okay. I, yeah. I'm like I literally can... making this picture with my hand. Perfect. Like, this is an audio <laughs> medium. <laughs> not your so, Yeah. So think about it like uh, like the things you take on an airplane with you, like the donut. Yeah. yeah. So okay. rather than putting it around right. your neck, you put your nose and the endotracheal tube kind of through that, so it keeps your head up off the bed. That's hard to pick. I mean, it's I I can picture it, but that's that's amazing that something like that is what's helping people. Why well, it has it has like a good pathophysiologic basis because um, yeah. one of the kind of phases of ARDS is you get this capillary leak because you've gotten you've uh-huh. gotten either viral mediated or cytokine mediated disruption of the, um, uh, the epithelial layers yeah. exactly, and so you have a lot yeah. of fluid, um, just uh-huh. pulmonary edema, um, come out into the um, alveolar spaces. And it's a gravity dependent process, right? Because it's fluid. And so if you were, if you look at the CT scans of this patient, a lot of the kind of um, damage and fluid accumulation is posterior. Um, And so they're just passing blood through those posterior um, deoxygenated regions. And so their VQ Uh matching is terrible. So if you flip them over, Eventually, all that fluid uh-huh. does drain to the front, but it takes a fair amount of time. And so I see. So it's almost like a sponge or something where you're flipping it over and then just flipping them back. Exactly. As it sort of. And so the blood is going to those like yeah. relatively normal lung spaces because the blood is going to is going to um, perfuse differentially now to the front of the person where the lungs are relatively uh-huh. normal. And so okay. you're actually going to get better oxygenation. For a time. For a time, least, right. right. Yeah. And that's where we, yeah. like 16, 18. And, but then the nice thing is you're just flipping them back over. So you're starting that process yeah. over again. Yeah, that's that's great. That's good to know. I, I was hearing stuff about that too. And then um, I also heard something. I, um, I was reading this New York Times article. It was this uh, woman who's an ER doctor. And she was talking about how all these patients are on ventilators in the ER, which is also not normal. But she was talking about how she was talking with a colleague of hers and a person came in who needed to be intubated for a reason that wasn't COVID. Mm-hmm. And they said something to the effect of like, oh, a non-rigid lung to inflate. How lovely. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. So is uh, is the um, COVID lung more an I'm probably gonna use the wrong terminology, but restrictive, is it more, it's harder to, it's like more brittle or something so, when you're using. Yeah. It, it, everybody's been kind of going back and forth on this. It's a really interesting question. So we kind of use the term compliance to describe kind of the elasticity okay, right, right. of the lung. Um, uh-huh. And so the COVID lungs obviously have reduced compliance, but they're oddly more uh-huh. compliant than what we usually see with ARDS, um, with like influenza related ARDS. So other viral pneumonia. Yeah. And I don't think anybody knows why okay. it's definitely much less compliant than someone you'd be intubating for another reason. Um, like what? Like, like an like overdose sepsis? where you needed to protect their airway oh. or sepsis okay. or okay. traumatic injury okay. um, or just Got regular it. good old okay. fashioned pneumonia. Um, just good old fashioned pneumonia. I mean, those yeah. were the days, right? Like, I guess for you, they were not for me. <laughs> when, well, if, if you had one patient yeah. with bacterial pneumonia, you know, yeah. you could, chances are you were going to get that person better and you're going to get them better relatively yeah. quickly. Yeah. And we hope we get back there. Eventually. <laughs> I, um, something since I never thought I would say is I hope I just get to treat pneumonia again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just run of the mill. So quote unquote, um, uh, my next question is going to betray how long it has been since I've had direct patient contact. Um, but the stories I hear of patients sort of packing units in various stages of hypoxemia, and I put a thing on my blog, which I'll put in the show notes about that, that diary of that physician, that female ER doctor, just in various stages of hypoxia and sort of like some needing masks and some needing to be ventilated. Um, it, it seems so stressful. And I know we've already talked about this, but what does it feel like to go to work knowing that you're going to go work in a unit full of COVID positive patients? Maybe you already are used to working with very sick people, but do you feel like this is just another day at the office? I think that the main thing that I noticed is that well, I'm used to taking care of very sick patients. We have patients on ECMO. We have a lot of advanced modalities in our pre-transplant population. I think what's, mm-hmm. what's different is, is that 
we're usually, we only usually have one or two really sick patients. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I was talking with a resident about this on uh, yesterday, actually. But what we've, what we're seeing now is every patient is that sick patient. Right. There's not the couple of patients who are have a little bit of hypotension and they need uh, vasopressors for 24 to 48 hours and then they're up and they're out of the unit. Everybody's right. really sick. They're there for a really long time. They're really slow to improve. Okay. They've developed mm-hmm. other complications. And mm-hmm. I think that more than anything is what kind of has been more challenging than a regular ICU day if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's because ev- everyone is getting that sick or that they are trying to manage the less sick patients in non-ICU settings now or both? Do you think some of those halfway sick people are on the floors now? It's a great question. Patients? I wish I had an answer for it, but I'm yeah. just not seeing the kind of halfway sick patients. I mean, yeah, they only kind of send the people who really need to be there. There's not the kind of we just want to observe this patient and see how they do. Um, I mean, I'm in the fourth or fifth surge ICU. So the ICU that I'm working in used to be our ED observation area. Oh, wow. So we've, oh, we're really kind of expanding the critical care capacity and they really sure. are being vigilant about really sending you the people who really absolutely. Yeah. Patients. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, so uh, let's see. It seems most of the deaths which are attributed to COVID, and I looked this up on the CDC website, are occurring in persons who are older, especially those over the age of 75. This may seem like a very basic question, but what about older folks makes them so susceptible to COVID-19? Is there something different about their lungs? Is it just purely an immune response? Or how, how would you answer that from a physiologic perspective? I'm not 100% sure that we know yet. I've heard mm-hmm. a whole different range of theories from, you know, there's immune senescence in older patients, so they don't mm-hmm. necessarily have as robust an immune system. But I could also see that being a good sign since a lot of what we're seeing seems to be like yeah. an over exuberant immune response. Right, um, almost like a cytokine storm. Yeah, exactly. Theorizing, right. And that's why people are right. reaching for like tocilizumab, which is an IL-6 inhibitor, to try to tamp down that, that immune response. And if it was mm-hmm. just that, you might think that older patients would be less susceptible to kind of the severe phenotype. Obviously, there's more comorbidities in the older population. Um, mm-hmm. They may have had less kind of, quote unquote, regular coronavirus exposure. I mean, some of the theories for why children seem to be getting less severe disease is that they're getting coronavirus non-COVID kind of in and out every year, yeah. which is yeah, sort of like uh, s- some bare, barely almost like when you're, you know, Flu vaccine doesn't really work, mm-hmm. but it makes it a little bit right, less exactly. awful for you when you get the flu, something like that. Yeah, right? so yeah. you can amount yeah. a pretty early antibody response, and then they can yeah. kind of tamp down the response. But I honestly, it's not. It's I think it's under it's under described right now, and I think as we're learning okay. more, we'll have answers for that. I mean, I think the thing that honestly has been most striking to me, just based on my experience in the last week, is how disproportionate um, the Black community in Philadelphia or, or people of color mm. in particular have been affected. Mm-hmm. My entire mm. unit was all people mm-hmm. of color. Um, oh, for heaven's sake. And so, it, again, it may have to do with something about the prevalence of comorbidities like hypertension and diabetes that seem right. to be risk factors for worsening disease. It may have to do with mm-hmm. how testing becomes available in different communities over different times. I, I don't know where, mm-hmm. what the kind of epidemiology of that observation is, but it's incredibly striking um, in our patient yeah. populations. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I think that's sort of emerging now. I was just listening to NPR before um, we were recording and they were talking about how they're just now collecting sort of granular demographic data here in Rhode Island. So I think early in the epidemic, at least we didn't, we weren't able to see that quite as clearly. Mm -hmm. I'm sure people on the front lines like you were, but um, we just didn't have the numbers. But now that they're coming out, I think that's going to be a discussion for many, many days about why that's happening. Agreed. Um, Another interesting fact uh, emerging from this pandemic is that more men seem to die. And I think also more men 
tend to get very sick. Are Do you have any guesses as to what's going on there? I think it's similar to older people where I've seen a lot mm-hmm. of hypotheses about kind of mm-hmm. burdens of comorbidities or how the distribution of comorbidities goes. But I haven't read anything that I've thought of as like a clearly compelling compelling argument, to be honest with you. Me neither. And I remember when I saw this data, um, my friend and I were talking about it when the data was coming out of China. And people at that time were thinking it was because so many more men in China smoke than the women, mm-hmm. right? So we were thinking maybe it was like underlying lung disease, basically, which is what you're saying. But I think it's been reproduced in countries like Italy and Spain, where the levels of smoking aren't that different. Um, I read something about how women produce stronger antibody responses mm-hmm. to disease. Yeah. Also, the thing you were talking about with um, having prior exposure to coronaviruses, and this is totally anecdotal, but I can tell you in my house, when my kids get sick, I get sick every single time. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not the same for my husband. And so I wonder if that is, I wonder if having children is protective because my kids don't get colds that I don't get. So I don't know. I think there's going to be, also, I have no idea how you would test that. So yeah, I think it's really tricky. And I could, I could certainly see how that might kind of explain why we're seeing more severe cases in men. I guess what I don't quite understand still is why men seem to be dying more once they get the disease. Right. Right. And that would sort of indicate that there's either a difference in the amount of antibody response that they're making or maybe their immune systems just overreact more easily, but that's not, is that something you notice with seasonal influenza? Cause I didn't see that the data. Not, not that kind of I'd have to go back that. and look to give yeah. you a really informed answer, but my kind of gut instinct is that there's not a dramatic difference. So like, for example, if a man and a woman of the same age and same pre-existing conditions rolled into the ICU a year ago with influenza and they needed you, you wouldn't automatically think like, I better treat that man with kid gloves because he might do worse than the woman. That wasn't something no. that was like, in, yeah, I didn't think so. That's very interesting. And uh, full credit for the idea about women getting sick more than men. I think my friend Tina came up with that idea because she's incredible. Um, <laughs> and I've been pestering her about whether or not I'm going to get sick for a long time. And she told me she thinks because I get colds from my kids all the time that maybe that'll be helpful, but we'll see. Um So now we're going to pivot and talk about medical ethics, which is an area many Americans are thinking about these days, including those who previously had not had to give it much thought. Um, My initial research into the subject landed squarely on ventilator availability, which seems to be something that a lot of people are talking about. And just through going online, nothing private or anything, just published statewide policies are available online. For example, New York State's and then this study, which was done in Maryland, Um, These were drafted in large part due to the threat of pandemic influenza, probably in the last decade. Um, There are several differences between those I have read, but the general principle seemed to be that preference is given to those most likely to respond to treatment with some objective criteria applied via some kind of scoring system. And while I realize that you can't disclose particular hospital policies, I'd like to talk about this idea of rationing resources with you. Most Americans are taken aback at the idea of medical rationing. As someone who treats transplant patients, though, I assume this idea is not unfamiliar to you. How are you approaching the idea of potential scarcity of resources? Um, Do you think transplant medicine prepared you for this in a way that other physicians weren't prepared for it? Yeah, those are are really great questions. Um, And it's something that I've come back to as we've thought about kind of both developing and implementing some of these guidelines. Um, So there was a real push to have kind of um, resource allocation guidelines after the pandemic influenza um, Mm -hmm. in, what was that, 2009, 2010? That sounds about right. Um, Yeah, but there's been more than one. There was there was that one and then there was swine flu and then there was H1N1. H1N1 that- was the one that I think really got on people's radars. Cause I can remember right. in Massachusetts where I was at the time, there was a lot of work done into creating a, a resource allocation guideline at that point. Mm-hmm. And it- I think that's pretty, 
common. I think that's what really got a lot of people exactly. thinking about this. Yeah. And then some yeah. of them, like the New York guidelines kind of made its way through and were implemented. And then some of them, I think just because H1N1 didn't turn out to be as severe as people thought, and maybe there was a little bit of mm-hmm. feeling like these things weren't going to be necessary because we really weren't going to see the kind of scenarios that we're seeing now. I think a lot of those um, allocation guidelines um kind of got tucked away or maybe fell to the wayside a little bit. And that really created a scenario which played out, you know, in early March as people really saw what was happening in Italy, they saw what was happening in New York, and they really realized Mm -hmm. we need resource allocation guidelines, particularly at the state level or Mm multi-institutional collaboration so that individual institutions could have a kind of consistent framework for thinking about if they needed to, what it would be like to kind of um, make rationing decisions. Yeah. Um, And as someone who, you said you work with patients in the Mm pre-transplant setting, is that a conversation that you have to have with patients in the pre-transplant setting? I assume that resource allocation is something that you think about all the time. Yeah, it really is. And I think, you know, we meet as a committee at least once a week to kind of review who is and isn't a candidate for transplant. Um, And we have like very kind of clear and transparent guidelines to help um, make those allocation decisions. Um, I think from, from my perspective, a lot of it is about trying to understand, you know, what the risk and benefit or risk in particular is for a particular patient. Because what you don't want to have with transplant especially is you you don't want someone to kind of go through transplant and either not make it through transplant because they have other severe comorbidities that means you can't get them through the procedure or they get through transplant, mm-hmm. but then they spend the rest of their life in the hospital um, mm-hmm. or just dealing with multiple ongoing complications that were foreseeable because of what you knew about them before transplant. Right. And so you really want to make sure you're benefiting the patient. Right. I mean. Right. That idea of giving giving a resource to someone who's likely to benefit from it. Right. But not not just following your your desire as a physician, which is to help everyone. Right. Exactly. Uh, And I think that the two main things I think that I would say that I took away from that that transplant experience is one, what we just talked about, about making sure that you're providing benefit to people who based on it your experience and the kind of objective criteria really will benefit from it. But then the other thing I think that's really important is, is that the people who are making the actual rationing decisions need to be separate from the people who are taking care of the patients. Um, Because you as a transplant pulmonologist or you as an ICU physician, your job is to advocate for your patient to get the resource or to be able to get access to it. And to simultaneously be expected to play the kind of gatekeeper role, whether that's you know, saying that you're not a candidate for transplant or saying that we can't offer you mechanical ventilation, that really mm-hmm. creates a tension that I don't think is sustainable for an individual clinician. Yeah. That that uh, was a yeah, that was a follow-up question I have, but that's a very common uh, sort of element of all of these policies is that that needs to be a separate committee, a separate physician, a separate ethicist, whoever is on that, but it can't be the person because then you would have obviously you're advocating for your patient and then the person next to you is advocating for their right. patient and there's no way to sort of resolve that. So yeah, you know, um, that, that was implemented yeah. in the guidelines and, and as kind of triage officers on an individual level mm-hmm. with the support of a triage committee. And I think that does a nice yeah. job of mirroring how the transplant structure um, is set up. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. Um, you've done research in the past on do not resuscitate or DNR orders Do you think, um, because as a pathologist, and this is sort of the, the joke, you know, everyone jokes about pathologists not having people skills, which in my, my experience is not true. Agreed. (laughs) Um, but, um, I don't know if you saw that, um, funny thing that was going, I think it was like a Gomer blog post or something about how the CDC was using pathologists as, um, model guideline followers of social distancing because we've been doing it for decades like ha 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 but it it was actually very funny it was very well written but uh, I think like three of my friends sent it to me at the same time but um I cannot imagine having that kind of conversation with a patient or their family but you 
like like I said, you've done research on DNR orders and you've had those conversations with patients. So do you think having uncomfortable conversations with patients as a physician on a normal basis prepares you to have potential discussions with people about withdrawing care or allocation of resources, which I don't, I don't, I'm not going to ask you if it's come to that, but do you, do you feel like to you, that's something that you just sort of take in stride or do you find this time to be unusual in that respect? Yeah, I I think we've, we've tried at least since I was a medical student to think about goals of care conversations or um, end of life treatment decisions a little bit differently than than we had in the past. And and I think I've really seen this in the last five or six years where they're almost treated like a procedural skill. Um, Mm. So that, that they're, so a good example is, you know, we do checklists now in the ICU for central lines, for arterial lines, for a lot of our procedural. And, Uh you know, that's to keep us kind of in with, within the standard expectations and kind of make sure you hit each of those points that you get your chest x-ray when you're done and you confirm the line so that you're not right right you're not falling out of that and i think one thing that you know there's a disanalogy which is that every critical care conversation is its own conversation based on unique factors about the patients but there's always going to be certain Mm -hmm. points that you want to make sure that you've touched on or that you want to make sure that you bring up um, in each conversation Mm -hmm that kind of can help set a framework for having those conversations Mm -hmm. go well, go clearly um, and really kind of elicit patient surrogate preferences and have people have a real understanding of, of the, of the situation to make a a, a decision along with their physicians about code status or about um, treatment uh, limitations or continuing life sustaining treatment. And so I think all of us now who do critical care, um, who were trained in the last six, seven, eight years, and a lot of people who are older who've gone back and kind of gotten additional training in this, really have developed a skill set that because it's been treated kind of procedurally, that you need to have this competency on a day-to-day basis to have these conversations and to do them well. And so from my own experience, I can't say that the kind of COVID-related conversations are dramatically different um, from the way that we've been trained. And I think that's a credit to the growth of palliative care and a lot of organization, organizational kind of education that's gone into treating these conversations as things that people need to be trained for. That's really good because... Uh, um... I can't remember ever having, you know, a lecture on that in medical yeah. school or like a few a few hours where they taught us about resource allocation. It wasn't something that was considered even in a vital skill when I was in medical school in what year was that? 2004 to 2008. So that's good to hear. I'm glad to hear that that's changed because having those skills for patients and families at a very difficult time uh, so important. So yeah, it's absolutely we're lucky essential. that people, yeah, people like you are out there. Um, so normally at this point in the podcast, I close with my final diagnosis, a play on pathology humor. Um, I'm not good at making <laughs> pathology jokes, but today it's pretty solid. I think I'm just gonna, <laughs> yeah, uh huh. Um, today I'm gonna leave the final diagnosis to Andrew. Um, what else do you think we should know about your specialty and what is happening during this pandemic? And let me just say, I already feel better about um, the way this is being handled. I think I just assumed that it was sort of like pandemonium and a pandemic, but it seems like there are such well-trained people out there. But what is there anything that you think I didn't ask you that you'd like to talk about? Um, I, I'll make one just kind of um, observation um, that I've seen over the last week or so, maybe kind of, again, a pathophysiologic observation. Um, oh, I love those. Which is yeah. that we, for whatever reason, we're seeing a lot more thrombotic events in this population. Um, I've heard than I would normally expect. There was a nice autopsy series that came out of, I think, Lancet um, last Uh week, where they just saw a ton of endothelial, endotheliolitis, really, um, Mm. that seemed to be contributing, whether there's other clotting dysregulation, I think, 
uh, remains to be seen. But it's really, I think, something that we're just starting to understand um, about how the COVID-related sickness seems to be different from other um, right. from other organi- organisms and from other kind of critically yeah. ill patients. And maybe there's, I mean, the way you talk about it, it's almost like there are stages, you know, like the mm-hmm. initial hypoxia and then the second wave, like maybe the thrombotic thing only happens to people who go on to some further stage that some people don't. And Yeah, I think that's really insightful. Knows? And I yeah. wouldn't be surprised at all yeah. if that's something that we ended up observing. Um, yeah, my, well, that's something to look for. Yeah. My last comment um, is, is that mm, I yeah. think as we figure out how to get us back to where you have more biopsies than you can handle and I can see my patients face to face again is just a call for more testing um, as much testing as we can we're already starting a program where anybody who's going into the operative spaces for semi-elective or urgent procedures are getting a COVID test beforehand Um, and that is that a uh, a PCR test not an antibody PCR test test. yep an actual Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so I think the best way to kind of get back to taking care of the non-COVID patients who've been so patient, um, I guess that's a yeah. medicine joke, <laughs> um, <Yeah>. <laughs> with everything <laughs> that's patients. been going on yeah. is to be able to test and protect. And I think that's yeah. where we need to be. Yeah, I, I, I've beat the testing drum beat, but I also think that testing and repeated testing of certain populations, like I'm sure your transplant patients and their contacts, and then anyone getting operated on healthcare workers, some people are just going to need to know every couple of weeks if they're positive, if they've already had it. So um, I was listening to the daily New York Times podcast about once you're immune, are people going to start wearing like a necklace or something or like a hat, like how, you know, cause yeah. it's going to be a sought after thing to know that you're immune to this. Cause we're assuming that protects you, which of course we don't know. Yeah. But, oh, that's a um, tricky question. Cause if regular coronavirus is anything to go by, that's going to be, uh, it'd be hard to difficult. figure out. Yeah. Right. But I'm just thinking, um, are you going to, once you know you're immune, will you wear <laughs> Like, like a, a like golden a hat, or, like a, a golden hat, and then is there going to be some sort of economic incentive for people who aren't even immune to just oh, say geez, they to get are the so that hat. they can go back out into the world? You know, because I mean, people have to yeah. earn money oh, and they, you know, they need to support themselves. Yeah. So it's going to be so interesting. So um, we have a lot. I, mean, I think maybe we should just do every couple of months check in with yeah. you because um, oh, I'd love your to. critical care connection. And just I love chat. it. I love talking to you. Yeah. It was, yeah, it's good to hear your voice again, and I'm glad to know you're safe. Because, like I said, I was picturing some sort of dystopian thing, and it sounds like you're okay. So that makes me feel a lot better. I'm hanging in there. Thank you for coming to talk to us today, and I'll talk to you again soon. Great, thanks, thanks so Andrew. Much. Bye.